Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Rob, I want to uh, ask you a question. I, I I think I've talked about this on the show before, but now I can't quite recall. Uh, you've seen the movie adaptation of Carl Sagan's Contact, right? Yes, it's been a while. I saw it when it came out in theaters, and I haven't seen it since. Oh, wow. That, that is a long time ago. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's really worth watching that movie. Uh, it, it always makes me emotional, but like one of the things about it that I, always sticks in my brain the most is the very opening sequence where you, you're starting um, on Earth and you're pulling out away from Earth. And as you get farther away out into interstellar space, the signals that you are hearing coming from Earth, like you're hearing like radio broadcasts or television broadcasts or something, and, and it just gets uh, older and older because you're, you're pulling out to where uh, older and older signals are the only ones that have reached that far. Yeah. And of course, there's this very chilling moment where you get really far out there, and I think you're just getting like a signal of Hitler reading a speech or something. It's just uh, like, oh, God. And it really makes you think about what kind of impression humanity is making on the broader galaxy. Yeah, I, I specifically remember this uh, this from the film. Yeah, it, it makes makes quite an impression. It makes you yeah a little uh, reflective on the... Uh on, on human civilization itself, and uh, and mm. and if anyone is receiving these signals, anything is receiving these signals, what they're picking up on, and what their impression is going to be of the of human civilization. Yeah, like what if aliens? The only thing they intercepted and had to go on was a TV edited broadcast of Batman Forever. <laughs> what would they? What would yeah. they conclude about Earth life? Yeah, that's it's it's a it's a fun game, uh, and it also plays into some fun sci-fi uh, to think about this. Uh, there's of course the Futurama episode where it's uh, essentially um, uh, what, what was it? Uh, Ally Mc uh, what was the lawyer show? Ally McBeal. Yeah, it's like an Ally McBeal esque show that was canceled, or it's um, it's it's uh, season finale didn't air, or somehow they didn't receive it, and that's what the aliens have come to Earth in order to uh, to get. They want the season finale for this television show. Oh, I think that's also uh, sort of the premise of Galaxy Quest, isn't it? That they see like a Star Trek style show, but they think it's a documentary about real life yeah, on Earth. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Now, of course, radio signals and, and so forth, they're not the only things that we have sent out into the void. Uh, we, of course, have sent machines as well. And I want us to, to think back for a second to the Pioneer plaques. The um, gold uh, anodized aluminum plaques attached to the 1972 Pioneer 10 and the 1973 Pioneer 11 spacecrafts. These were the first human-made objects to escape velocity from our solar system and the first physical emissaries of Earth life and Earth civilization. I think in the years since, they've actually been outpaced by the Voyager probes in leaving the solar system. Is that right? I think so. I believe so. And there's, of course, a similar story to tell with those uh, uh, spacecraft as well. Uh, but but uh, uh, specifically with the plaques, uh, because, uh, you know, these were, of course, machines. They were not human beings. They were powered by nuclear batteries. They had antenna, uh, antennae. They had uh, an assortment of scientific equipment on board. So they didn't look like us or in any way really represent biological life, except in the case of these plaques, which include a number of symbols detailing the origin of the spacecraft and meant to sort of convey, you know, uh, you know human understanding of... Of, of where we are in the solar system and, the, and the, 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 the larger cosmos. But then also it contained these, these now iconic depictions of two human beings, uh, a nude male and a nude female. Now, uh, it's worth noting Carl Sagan regretted that the humans on the plaque do not appear pan-racial, uh, but rather appear very Caucasian. Uh, and also the line representing the female's vulva was removed. So she's kind of like, um, uh, like a Barbie doll. Uh, on this, uh, you know, the, the, so the, they're not completely anatomically correct, and they seem to only represent uh, Caucasians as opposed to like a the idea of representing the broader uh, human species as a whole. Now, uh, one of the things that's super interesting about all of this, especially given what we're going to be talking about in this episode, is that the Pioneer probes and subsequent spacecraft are non-human machines that merely bear, in some cases, the inscriptions of human beings, be they just, you know, actual inscriptions or media of some sort. Uh, and at the same time, these are our mechanical works, our machine utterances 
that are cast out into the void. They are us reaching out for and to other life forms. Now, today, humans maintain a small orbital presence, and humans did visit the moon in the previous century, but our outreach continues to take the form of these technological utterances. And even though it is the work of human beings on our planet to analyze the data we receive in search of possible signs of alien life, we also use artificial intelligence in many scientific and technological applications, including the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. (laughs) That is strange. Yeah. And uh, I guess it's interesting on a couple of levels. So first of all, you know, one of the things humans and we've discussed this in the show before, one of the things that humans and their AI creations look for are techno signatures. And these include both radio signals and things like mega structures like uh, Dyson spheres, you know. Uh, so just as we are reaching out with our mechanical utterances, we are seeking the mechanical utterances of others. Yeah, we haven't talked about Dyson spheres in a while, but unless my memory is betraying me, I think one of the ways to look for something like that would be look out there and see if there's some kind of structure or object that is basically only emitting heat. And the idea there would be, you know, if all the other frequencies of radiation are being used up and only heat is coming out of it, that looks like that's probably a waste product of doing work. So it's like, you know, it's the fan on your computer just blowing out into space. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and basically coming back to the idea that advanced civilizations are going to have advanced energy requirements, and therefore they're going to have to harness the energy of entire suns. Now, the, the other angle on this that, that is interesting, and one that I, I really hadn't thought about, uh, is that there may be problems with our use of AI for such uh, searches, as pointed out by Spanish clinical neuropsychologist Gabriel G. De La Torre in a 2020 paper published in uh, Acta Astronautica. Uh, uh, basically, the idea is AI could confuse us uh, or tell us that it has detected impossible or false things in the data. And our AI creations can certainly reflect our own biases. We, we've discussed that as well. You know, like mm-hmm. we can and, and you know, this this applies to things like facial recognition, et cetera. Like we can we can easily program our own um you know, uh, overt or hidden wants and desires into the AI we create. Yeah, or not even program them. AI can acquire them from data sets based on our on reality. If it's just trying to like read what has happened in the world and learn mm-hmm. from that, it can internalize biases that we didn't even try to explicitly give it because those biases are reflected in how the world is. Yeah. So the AI we unleash on on, the, on such a search for alien life might simply be more inclined to find evidence of it, dragging in human bias, or it could simply identify things that are not there. It could find patterns that 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 simply aren't actually there in a meaningful way. Oh, well, this immediately makes me think of what was it called? The Google Deep Dream that mm-hmm. found, you know, dog faces in everything where yes. some, like <laughs> have a have a picture and have Google analyze it, and I think it would try to extract recognizable patterns and then amplify them. So you take a picture of your couch, and suddenly your couch, uh, you, you know, Google happens to detect that your couch is made out of crabs, dogs, and human faces. Yeah, so, you know, you wouldn't want your your uh, your AI reporting back and saying, we found it. Uh, it's a planet. We're calling it Good Dog One. It's mm-hmm. Composed entirely of dog faces, so let's celebrate. And it's under threat from the nearby crab nebula, not the crab nebula you know, the literal crab nebula, which is made of crabs. Yes. <laughs> so uh, there, there's actually a specific situation that uh, the author points out in this paper, uh, and it concerns the Venalia Faculae of, uh, of, of Ceres, the largest object in the asteroid belt. Uh, Basically, the situation here is bright spots were observed in a crater there, uh, which turned out to be volcanic ice and salt emissions. You might remember seeing pictures of this on the Internet. So, yeah, Ceres is an object in the asteroid belt, sometimes referred to, I think, as a dwarf planet or something. It's basically spherical, so it looks kind of like a moon. Uh, And, yeah, there was a big crater in it where right in the middle of the crater – there was there were these white bright white spots there and obviously you know without knowing better and having learned our lesson from the face on mars and all this stuff you mm-hmm. know be, people's natural inclination was to was to pattern recognize out the butt and go like ah that technology or something that's an alien yeah. Yeah, clear, yeah, you start looking for geometric shapes and, uh, and, and looking for artificiality in it. 
And uh, so this this particular paper, this this team from the University of Cadiz, they had already looked at what they called the cosmic gorilla effect in 2018. Um, this of this is um, referring, of course, to these um, these attention based experiments that we've we've discussed before on the show, and a lot of you've probably seen in YouTube clips where you have somebody in a gorilla costume walk through a scene and see afterwards if anybody noticed it. Yeah, hu- human cognition has amazing blind spots for attention that will astound you. Uh, now, we've already warned you, so if you've never tried this experiment before, you might be on your guard and already knowing what to look for. But yeah, basically the way it goes is like you can do something like have a bunch of people stand in a circle throwing a basketball to each other, mm-hmm. and you ask people to judge how many times the basketball is passed from person to person, and they'll do that. And in the middle of the video, a person in a gorilla costume just walks through the middle of the group and huge numbers of people while they're counting the basketball passes do not see the gorilla and like if you go back and watch the video again looking for the gorilla it is unmissable but somehow when we're trained in on a certain type of cognitive task and visual processing you can completely miss gross stimuli that that would seem impossible to miss if you were looking for them Yeah. And of course, one can imagine that if an artificial intelligence were watching the same scene, they would pick up on the gorilla. They would they would it would be able to say, oh, gorilla, uh, uh, unexpected gorilla has appeared in this scene and then report it as such. And so the cosmic gorilla effect basically deals with the idea that if there are intelligent, non-earthly signals out there, they could be writ in dimensions that escape our perceptions, such as dark matter, for example. And it would be like the gorilla suit, you know, we just wouldn't see it. Uh, but an AI m- would potentially have an advantage in catching those sorts of signals. Oh, OK. Yeah, I see what they're saying there. So in, in this particular in this 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 newer study looking at uh, the Venalia Facile, uh, they did the following. They used one hundred and sixty three volunteers, uh, human volunteers with no grounding in <laughs> astronomy. I want to stress they're not gorillas or robots. OK. Um, Plus, they used an artificial vision system based on uh, convolutional neural networks, or CNNs. Both groups detected square structures in the image of the Venalia Facile, uh, but the AI also saw a triangle. And when the triangle option was then presented to humans, um, the number of humans claiming to also see a triangle increased significantly. So while AI could certainly detect something that we cannot that we cannot see it might also detect something that isn't there and then confuse us into seeing something that isn't there as well so you can see the the sort of spiraling effects of this uh and and ultimately with the aid of ai we end up seeing signs of life uh where there weren't any to begin with okay i see i see what you're saying so the idea is that humans already have a certain tendency for pareidolia or pareidolia the Mm -hmm. uh the you know detecting of patterns or signal within noise. So it's the reason that we see faces in the clouds or see a face on Mars or any number of things. We uh, look at something that in fact has no encoded information in it and we think we can extract meaningful information. I mean, no meaningful information. And we think we can extract meaningful information. Uh, You know, listening to tape hiss, you might think you hear a word or something like that. And and the example here is we think we see, I don't know, a pyramid or an alien, you know, a building on this asteroid or this dwarf planet. And then you can actually make it worse by if you add on an AI, the AI may in fact contribute to priming that makes you even more likely to engage in pareidolia. The same way that if somebody plays you a tape hiss and doesn't just play it for you, but says, you know, hey, listen for the part where it says worship Satan or whatever, that you're mm-hmm. probably more likely to hear it because you've been primed. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's kind of like imagine. You know, you're thinking about Fleetwood Mac albums, and then you learn, oh, um, you know, uh, this, uh, you know, Watson AI or whatever has determined that Tusk is the best Fleetwood Mac album. Uh And you might think, well, you know, it wasn't my favorite, but the AI has identified it as the best Fleetwood Mac album. Perhaps Mm -hmm. it is the best Fleetwood Mac album, even though deep down, you know, it's rumors. (laughs) Even if deep down, you know, it was one of those early albums before Stevie Nicks was in the band. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, exactly. Basically, yeah, Nobody it comes back to that. <laughs> but it does come back to the idea, yeah, that we 
we're uh, we're enti- we're very susceptible to priming, and we could. And the argument here by the authors is that you could set up a situation where where your AI dragging in certain uh, biases is, uh, is is setting you up, uh, is priming you uh, to to with it see things that aren't there, uh, which could ultimately just make the the search for actual you know evidence of uh, intelligent uh, alien life elsewhere in the galaxy all the more difficult. So this is kind of a conundrum because the AI could. It could be helpful and harmful, like it could help with the problem of the the gorilla effect where we, uh, you know, we just totally miss things that we should have seen. But it can also on the other end cause us to see things that aren't there. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and and a lot of, some of this isn't completely crucial to where we're going from uh, from here in the episode, but it's worth thinking thinking about because here's the other side of things. What's out there might not simply be the mechanical utterances of biological life as well. It could be the mechanical echoes of biological life, what is sometimes referred to as post-biological life and even post-biological intelligence. And this, this has some huge implications um, uh, all its own. Okay, so the idea here would be not that uh, you know we we already expect that it's possible we could encounter alien technology rather than biological aliens themselves just because alien technology is say a you know an artifact of their previous occupation of a planetary surface or uh, a, a piece of technology could be their probe like our voyager probes you know these do not mm-hmm. have humans in them they're just going out there yeah but this idea goes beyond that to say well maybe it's not just that we're encountering the mechanical residue of biological life but we're encountering a civilization that at this point only consists of machines that there that is inherently post biological. Yeah. At what point does the residue become the thing itself? As a civilization becomes increasingly technological, at what point is the technology the defining or sole aspect of the civilization? Yeah. Now, this is an idea that's certainly been uh, discussed in science fiction a lot. I think Gene Wolfe had had one version of this where you have an entire mechanical society and they have evolved from uh, advanced spacesuits for biological beings that no longer exist, uh, that sort of thing. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, not to give away too much, but this is also explored in uh, one of our favorite video games that we've talked about on the show oh, before, yes. uh, a really cool game called Soma that is sort of a, an undersea sci-fi horror game uh, that involves a post-biological existence. Yeah, yeah. A good connection. I wasn't even thinking about Soma, uh, but, but that, that is a great example of this as well. So uh, a couple of sources that we we looked at for this uh, that I want to go ahead and mention here, and of course we'll we'll get into in greater depth, uh, the work of um, SETI's Seth Shostak and the work of Susan Schneider, a a cognitive scientist and philosopher. I was just trying to look up Susan Schneider's uh, affiliation. I think at some point she was affiliated with the University of Connecticut. It looks like maybe the more recent one is Florida Atlantic University. But anyway, yeah, she she is a uh, a philosopher whose work we have discussed on the show before. Actually, uh, her work came up in an episode we did about whether machines could be conscious because she was one of the authors who advanced the idea of a test for AI consciousness that uh, I thought was pretty interesting. And it was actually very simple. The, the test was uh, basically just variations on can this machine – grasp and manipulate supernatural concepts from fiction and folk belief, such as Mm -hmm. ghosts and astral projection and body swapping, like in the movie Freaky Friday and stuff. You know, uh, it might sound kind of silly, but actually these are concepts that uh, I think you can make a good argument only intuitively make sense to us because we have a subjective internal experience and to an intelligent machine or even a biological automaton that didn't have an internal experience, it would not make any sense to, to uh, envision something like being a, a ghost or an astral projection where your consciousness leaves your body because what would be doing the leaving of the body? Mm, yeah. You know, now, now that I'm thinking about uh, Susan Schneider, I think I saw her at world science festival at some point in the past. Um, but I've, didn't think of it till now and forgot to check my uh, my old notes to see if I had anything. Uh, I wanted to start with uh, with Showstack though, uh, specifically his 2010 paper, "What ET Will Look Like and Why Should We Care." Uh, and this uh, basically this paper discusses um, 
this idea of post-biological life, the search for extraterrestrial life. And it starts off by discussing our carbon bias in the hunt for for, for ETs. Uh, you know, we, we look for rocky worlds that contain liquid water as this is the path toward organic life. This is where organic life emerges from. Uh, all of our models are built on this. Uh, and, and that's that's the softer version of our bias, while the harder version is what, what uh, he, he references uh, an individual by the name of Simon Conway Morris, who argues that, uh, that any evolved intelligent life form is going to r- roughly look like us, at least in Shostak's words, uh, quote, in a dark night and from a distance. <laughs> and I believe we've discussed this idea at length on the podcast. Yeah, th- I think this was one of the earliest episodes of the show I ever did. So it was years and years ago at this point. But uh, we talked about Simon Conway Morris, uh, who I think is an evolutionary biologist from Great Britain, if I'm not mistaken. But he uh, – oh, it was the episode called Grizzly Bears from Outer Space. Oh, yes, where, yes, yes. So there, there are two very opposing schools of thinking about you know the forms uh, intelligent aliens could take. Some people say you know it, we can't even imagine how different they could be from us. It, you know, it's, it's impossible for us to get outside of our own anthro, uh, anthropomorphic paradigm to imagine how biologically different and strange aliens could be. And Morris was on the other side. He was saying, no, there are actually – principles of evolution and sort of bio, uh, chemical constraints on what life could evolve. And basically, he says there's a pretty narrow range for what types of organisms can evolve just based on the physics and chemistry of the universe. And so we actually shouldn't expect aliens to be all that different from us. We should actually expect them to be pretty similar in uh, in very dependable ways. Yeah, so it's kind of the idea that wherever you go, there are probably going to be things like crabs, and there is going to be something like a human um, chasing those crabs around with some sort of a tool that's made to catch those crabs. Yeah. I mean, it's been a while, so I'm sure I'm somewhat oversimplifying. Apologies yeah. to Conway Morris, but uh, but that's the rough outline. It's that, that, that biology is constrained by physics and chemistry and evolution, and those factors are going to be universal no matter what kind of planet you're on or you know what star you're orbiting. And so there, there are some patterns we should see repeating uh, all throughout the galaxy. So, so that's one part of it. But then uh, apparently a lot of this uh, bias is present, uh, arguably, the Shostak uh, you know, argues this, in the Drake equation itself, as we factor in the time it would take for life to evolve and the average lifetime of a technological society. Now, recall the the Drake equation was a hypothetical way of trying to calculate the number of technological civilizations that would be present in our galaxy by multiplying together a bunch of numbers. And uh, I don't remember what all the variables are now, but it would be something like you multiply the probability that life will arise on a planet at all times the probability of that uh, of any life becoming intelligent times the you know a, a number of things like that and then i think you would also have to factor in the average lifespan of a technological civilization because at some point it will probably go extinct yeah and we keep coming back to the drake equation uh, you know in in not just us but in general because it breaks a big question down into these different factors that you can then um uh, you know work with independently yeah, that's very useful. It decomposes the problem into a discrete set of smaller questions, many of which also we still don't know the answers to, but it is at least helpful to know what those questions would be so they can be investigated individually. Now, the chance of detecting a technological civilization close to our own level uh, of development is apparently small. Chances are if we were to detect one, they'd be thousands of years or more uh, beyond us. And when we extrapolate that, Shostak says, we we what we tend to do is we tend to base it on our current state of human evolution and imagine something it points out with with less hair with fewer teeth with less less reliance on physical labor um which you know to me this instantly makes me think of like the gray ones right and right. Uh, you know the various uh, extraterrestrial tropes that we have which yeah are kind of an idea of what if we continued to get less exercise, we continued to stare at screens, continued to type and stay indoors, you know, for, you know, you know, a million years or so, uh, what could begin to happen? It's hilarious. The gray aliens are just nerds. They're the nerds <laughs> of the galaxy. They're all brains, no brawn, huge head to contain that huge brain that can design their interstellar spaceships and then skinny little arms. And they stand around with their huge eyes poking us with with sticks and going like, oh, what, you know, what have we learned? And yet with those huge brains, like how many cattle are they going to have to mutilate before they 
finally figure out what makes a cow work. <laughs> a lot, a lot, you know. Um, so so uh, Shostak ultimately makes the argument that that this idea should evolve, that that or should have evolved more than it has, and uh, he does this by pointing out that uh, you know that, that our ideas evolved concerning life on Mars. You know, initially uh, we we were looking, at, we were considering, oh, the possibility of intelligent canal builders on Mars, and we've discussed where that idea came from on the show before. You know, mi- uh, sort of misinterpretation and. Uh, and, and straining to to see things that weren't there a little bit of that uh, that, that bias as well uh, regarding our some of our earlier uh, views of the red planet but then just within a few decades that is forced to evolve when we realize oh there aren't canals and uh, and, and there's uh, instead of looking for a technological society we're looking at the possibility of subterranean microbes so our, our, our ideas concerning life and other star systems, they argue, has not evolved in a similar way. Well, certainly not in the popular consciousness. I would say, right. I mean, at least in some of the astrobiology literature we read, it seems like it it is uh, pretty sober from my point of view in that like looking for um, for biosignatures often has to do with looking for the kinds of, say, gases in the atmosphere that you would mm-hmm. expect if there were a photosynthesizing organism, which could just be a microbe. And right. you know, th- that seems like a reasonable thing to look for for me. But yeah, obviously, like when you're trying to think beyond that, think like if we were to make contact with another, uh, you know, type of alien from another type of planet, what would it be? I think that we're still pretty close to the gray aliens point of view. Right. And of course, I should also again point out that this is uh, like a, a decade-old paper at this point. So, yeah. you know, to some extent, Shostak himself may have helped move the needle. But um, he points out that you know, in, in addition to the purely organic model for a more advanced alien life form, we also have to consider you know the cybernetic. What if humans and indeed more advanced alien life forms have gone Borg to some extent? They, they've mm-hmm. augmented their their organic forms with mechanical precision. And there are multiple examples of this we might turn to in science fiction, uh, you know, and it's going to range, range hands in degrees. Steel. <laughs> hands of Steel is a good example to draw on a different uh, recent Weird House Cinema episode. But you have stuff like uh, The Culture from Ian M. Banks novels where it's more of a, you know, a positive spin on the idea to stuff like the Borg and the Cybermen, you know, where everyone is majority or almost entirely machine and with only some slim vestige of organic life in there, you know. So everybody's a RoboCop, too. Everybody's a oh, Grievous, no. uh, that sort of thing. <laughs> Just a planet of Tom Noonan's from RoboCop 2. <laughs> yeah, just screaming for their space drugs. Um, but uh, actually, no, I literally do want to come back to this point later on. Okay. <laughs> but then there's one step beyond all this, and that is the complete mechanical replacement capped off by the birth and explosion of artificial intelligence. So for this in sci-fi, one can certainly turn to the Terminator model, you know, where AI emerges and then it kills off everything that came before. Um and this is, of course, very popular in science fiction, uh, you know. But then another common trope is that the machine part of a society alone survives. So the servants outlive the masters due to, you know, some sort of cataclysm or disease, what have you. But the other way of looking at it as well is that it's simply the mechanical utterance is not something you know, ex- extending from the civilization. You know, it's not just an echo, but it is the next phase of its evolution. That the machine utterance is post-organic life. Perhaps the organic aspect of a civilization simply fades away and, you know, given these advancements, or perhaps uh, to use that the culture model from Banks's books, the organic source remains, but the predominant shape of the civilization in question is entirely post-organic. Because with, with the culture, for instance, it's uh, in his in his books, it's mostly the AI. It's mostly the ships. It's mostly their, uh, you know, robots and whatnot. But the humans are still there, but they're kind of like, uh, they're kind of a thing that is preserved for the sake of, of preserving it, you know? They are the remora on the shark. Yeah, but a, but a, but a remora that is sort of cherished, you know? It's almost oh, like, okay. um, you know, at times there's the sense that the, the robots and the AI, uh, the minds of the culture, you know, they're, they're babysitting for the humans. The humans are this thing that is uh, nurtured and preserved because they are the machine's past, you know? Oh, I want, so would it be kind of like if there's a country that still has a ceremonial monarchy, but the, the monarchs have no actual political power? Yes. Yes, that would be a, a prime example, I think. So uh, Shostak uh, also points out that given Moore's law, the successful creation of human-level AI 
is, of course, going to lead to even greater AI. Quote, assuming that our own technological timescales are not grossly atypical, this implies something important for SETI. Once any society invents the technology that could put them in touch, once they reach a level that's comparable to our own and become detectable with our listening experiments, they are at most only a few hundred years away from changing their own paradigm of sentience to artificial intelligence. This is almost identical to a point that's made in the uh, Susan Schneider chapter that we're going to talk about in a bit. Yeah. So he stresses that such an emergence wouldn't necessarily affect the biological ancestors at all, but it makes sense that post-biological life would outlast and outperform the organic. Uh, we could therefore assume that any life form we encounter in the, the, the galaxy at large would be a machine. Okay, well, maybe this is a good place to get into uh, Susan Schneider's chapter on this because she makes a similar argument, uh, covers some similar ground, and and we can look at that in detail now and then come back to the rest of her argument after that. Uh, But so this chapter is by Susan Schneider, and it's from a book called The Impact of Discovering Life Beyond Earth, edited by Stephen J. Dick, published by Cambridge University Press in 2015. And in this book, Schneider has a chapter called Alien Minds, where she makes the same argument that Shostak is making here about the nature of minds we would be most likely to encounter if we make contact with another civilization. And so uh, several of her main points would be the following. She does argue that uh, in the most likely scenario, if we ever encounter alien agents, it is likely that they will not be biological life forms, but rather forms of superintelligent artificial intelligence or SAI. And then she also says, of course, that intelligence can take many forms, but there are reasons to think these machines would be modeled on the intelligence of biological organisms that arose through evolution. And you could call these agents biologically inspired superintelligent aliens or BISAs, B-I-S-A. And there are a number of arguments she makes about what the cognition of those aliens would uh, consist of. But I just want to go back to her first argument that we would be more likely to encounter post-biological superintelligent AI than we would to encounter biological organisms like ourselves. And so there are three main points to her argument. The first is what she calls the short window of observation. And the argument goes like this. Once a society has the level of technology that would allow them to come into contact with the rest of the cosmos, and this could include things like radio reception and transmission, rocketry, and so forth, at that point, that society is less than a few hundred years from changing their paradigm from biology to artificial intelligence to you know silicon-based AI. And she makes an argument for this based on uh, – Previous accelerating rates of computation. So you already mentioned Shostak referencing Moore's law. That would be in parallel to what he's saying there. Uh, so the advance of digital technology. But she also makes reference to a thought experiment from her previous work. Uh, and so I just want to read the thought experiment as she describes it. And then we can discuss pros and cons. Schneider writes, quote, Suppose it is 2025, and being a technophile, you purchase brain enhancements as they become readily available. First, you add a mobile internet connection to your retina. Then, you enhance your working memory by adding neural circuitry. You are now officially a cyborg. Now skip ahead to 2040. Through nanotechnological therapies and enhancements, you are able to extend your lifespan. And as the years progress, you continue to accumulate more far-reaching enhancements. By 2060, after several small but cumulatively profound alterations, you are a post-human. To quote philosopher Nick Bostrom, post-humans are possible future beings, quote, whose basic capacities so radically exceed those of present humans as to be no longer unambiguously human by our current standards. At this point, your intelligence is enhanced not just in terms of speed of mental processing. You are now able to make rich connections that you were not able to make before. Unenhanced humans, or naturals, seem to you to be intellectually disabled. You have little in common with them, but as a transhumanist, you are supportive of their right not to enhance. It is now A.D. 2400. For years, worldwide technological developments, including your own enhancements, have been facilitated by superintelligent AI. Indeed, as Bostrom explains, quote, Creating superintelligence may be the last invention that humans will ever need to make, since superintelligences could themselves take care of further scientific and technological developments. 
Over time, the slow addition of better and better neural circuitry has left no real intellectual difference in kind between you and superintelligent AI. The only real difference between you and an AI creature of standard design is one of origin. You were once a natural, but you are now almost entirely engineered by technology. You are perhaps more aptly characterized as a member of a rather heterogeneous class of AI life forms. And so her thought experiment ends there, but she's trying to sketch how it would be plausible to imagine humans existing today actually becoming machines little by little over time and by extending their lifespans. Now, I will say I I do think there's there's value in this thought experiment, and I'm glad we're pursuing it. But I also do feel like I need to flag that I am significantly more skeptical of these types of common extrapolations about transhumanism and artificial intelligence than I used to be. I think my skepticism comes down to a suspicion that scenarios like these make a lot of assumptions that are just taken as obvious, but I think are actually somewhat speculative. Uh, For example, would it actually be possible to increase human cognitive capacity with neural implants? That, that just seems obvious. It is taken as an assumption because obviously computers can do things that human brains can't do, or at least they can do them at speeds that human brains can't match. Mm-hmm. But what if there are inherent biological throttles or gates on consciousness and cognition in brains that make the neural cyborg not much smarter than a human with access to a computer? What if there's just something physically about the properties of brains that doesn't allow you to augment them with technology like this? It just doesn't work. Or what if becoming a neural cyborg with computer-enhanced cognition is actually a subjectively dreadful, miserable experience, and it turns out that once people have tried it and reported on what it's like, nobody wants to do it because it feels awful. Yeah, I'm like I'm thinking like what if some sort of an upgrade you received made it possible for you to say, well, let's say be better at personal finance. But as a result, uh-huh. that means that there is constantly an additional background narrative in your brain, in your consciousness about your personal finances. And maybe that's good yeah. uh, for for just a, you know your, your your pocketbook and your investments, but ultimately maybe it sucks for life, you know, because it's this is not the sort of yeah. balance of inattention that makes uh, life worth living or makes it like uh, like it was before. Like it it changes you to such an extent that you want to go back. You like part of the joy of life is maybe not thinking about personal finance all the time. Yeah. What if part of what makes it fun to be a human is not being a computer? And if yeah. you the more you make your brain into a neural cyborg, the more miserable your life becomes and you and you desperately seek to regress. Yeah. Another thing, uh, what if consciousness is just inherently non-transferable to machinery? I, I don't know this is the case. Some people do make this argument, and I have no reason to assume this is true, but I also have no reason to assume the opposite. There's no reason to assume that you can actually upload your mind to any kind of computer substrate. I think this is just a big question mark. We just don't know if such a thing is possible. Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to believe at this point that we could create something that acts like us. Mm-hmm. You could create something that is essentially like the, the the machine avatar of who we were, or who we thought we were, or who we want to be thought of after the fact. Right. But to, to the point, like, is that, I, I think when you start asking more specific questions about, like, is that us, then mm-hmm. I don't know, I feel like it isn't. Is it? Could it be conscious at all? Even if it could be conscious, is there any reason to believe that you would experience it as a conscious continuation of your previous mind, or would it just be a conscious copy of you? Yeah, or, I mean, when you start asking questions like that, then you get into questions of, like, well, it, and, and who I am now? Is this really a continuation of who I was five sure, years ago? That's fair. You know, I mean, yeah. you start seeing all the, uh, the flaws in this um, – narrative of self and uh, identity and maybe it becomes maybe that's the thing maybe we reach a kind of uh, we reach a point where we realize none of it is real like there is no real (laughs) continuation of the self and therefore why not create like three different machine avatars of myself and have them continue my legacy for me 
I just want to mention a few other questions that just popped into my mind this morning. Uh, what if there are actually hard limits on certain kinds of intelligence, whether you're talking about a, a biological brain or a computer? Uh, what if certain types of complex problem solving within a coherent agent system, meaning like, you know, a, a single sort of mental workspace that all is that is coherent and communicates with every part of itself uh, what if there are limits on what kind of intelligence can happen in an agent system like that? Mm. Uh, or different thing, uh, what if biological organisms in general, even across the galaxy, have an overwhelming tendency to revolt against the cultural transition to machine life and will always or almost always end up engaging in something like Frank Herbert's Butlerian Jihad, you know, where you shall not make a machine in the image of uh, of a human brain? Yeah, yeah. You want to end up moving towards that sort of Star Wars model where, yeah, you have all these advanced machines everywhere, but they're only working as servants, you know, uh, with a few exceptions that I guess kind of prove the rule in that universe. So anyway, literally hundreds of questions like this I think I could list and they start coming to mind when I think about it. And while I don't assume that any of them are strong enough to completely disable the transhumanist proposition, I also wonder if – some uh, transhumanist and superintelligence thinking is too quick to hand wave past these kinds of questions. Mm. But like I said earlier, I do think this type of scenario that Schneider is talking about is plausible enough to entertain as a thought experiment. So I want to keep going with it. And one thing I will say in favor of uh, of her argument is that, at least intuitively, I think her timeline is reasonable, meaning that I think if it is possible to create an AI superintelligence and that humans or their biological alien counterparts do at some point merge with or fade into that uh, machine AI superintelligence, I don't see why it would take more than a few hundred years after the invention of computers, basically, for that to happen. Uh, and even if it took tens of thousands of years – I think Schneider's point on this first point she's making is basically correct. The time between when a species starts technologically interacting with the universe beyond its home planet and when it becomes dominated by post-biological intelligence, if this is possible, that that time gap seems very small, I mean, vanishingly small compared to the lifespan of a planetary biosphere. Yeah, so you come back to that scenario that Shostak was talking about where – once you're detectable, it's just a matter of time before the machine administration moves in. So I, one instantly thinks you can imagine the, the, the aliens out there, if they're listening in on this, they're like, well, should we contact them now? And they're like, well, no, they're, they're about to change administration. Like the right. humans in charge <laughs> now are about to hand off in relatively little time from our standpoint to machines that'll be It'll be just easier to communicate with those machines, and we'll we'll they'll be a, a lot more pleasant to deal with uh, as mm -hmm. opposed to these uh, organic beings. So yeah, I would say I'm more bullish on the second half of, of Schneider's proposition here than the first half. I don't know if the age of machines is coming. That's a big question mark for me. But I will agree that if it's coming, it's coming very fast. Yes, and if it is coming, we welcome our machine overlords. <laughs> But anyway, that was all just Schneider's first point about the, the short window of observation. A couple of other points that are uh, quicker to make. Uh, the, the second one that she makes is the greater age of alien civilizations. So here she cites some pre-existing statistical work making the point that, and I think Shostak made this point as well, if you assume a random distribution of biological evolution across the galaxy, most alien civilizations should be expected to be millions or billions of years older than us. So either there's something very special and rare about Earth life, or we're one of many planets with, uh, with, with powerful intelligence and civilization. And if we are, we, we should expect to be on the young side of that equation. Mm -hmm. So if you couple this with the previous point, she argues, you, you start getting toward an interesting conclusion. Again, these two points are, uh, on average, we should assume that other alien civilizations have been around for millions or billions of years. And on average, alien civilizations transform themselves into post-biological superintelligences very fast. There's a very short window of uh, technological civilizations that are still biological in nature. And so if you put those things together, you should expect, yeah, if we're meeting something, it's probably post-biological. And I will say, as far as my reaction, again, I have lodged my moderate skepticism about the, the transhumanist and AI extrapolations, mind uploading and so forth, but I follow the argument so far. 
Uh, her third point, and I think this is an interesting one, she says, silicon is a better medium for intelligence, at least better than carbon. <laughs> <laughs> and this one is interesting. Uh, basically, Schneider argues that carbon-based life forms will recognize the inherent physical advantages in transferring themselves into silicon-based machines. Again, you know, flag my skepticism about mind uploading, but if it's possible, okay, I, I follow the argument. She writes, quote, Silicon appears to be a better medium for information processing than the brain itself. Neurons reach a peak speed of about 200 hertz, which is seven orders of magnitude slower than current microprocessors. While the brain can compensate for some of this with massive parallelism, features such as hubs and so on, crucial mental capacities such as attention rely on serial processing, which is incredibly slow and has a maximum capacity of about seven manageable chunks. I did not follow up on what she means by chunks there, but she cites Miller from 1956. This must be a, a computational science paper. She goes on, further, the number of neurons in a human brain is limited by cranial volume and metabolism, but computers can occupy entire buildings or cities and can even be remotely connected across the globe. Of course, the human brain is far more intelligent than any modern computer. But intelligent machines can, in principle, be constructed by reverse engineering the brain and improving upon its algorithms. You know, this this reminds me how in Ian M. Banks's culture uh, books, there are parts where the uh, the machines are working with humans because you have human characters that are playing an important role because that that makes it an interesting story. Um, mm -hmm. But the the machines, of course, are communicating with each other. The minds are communicating with each other at just blindingly fast speeds. Mm -hmm. And then when they need to communicate with an organic being, it just like it's just slow as Christmas. You know, it just yeah. drags everything to a halt basically for them. Yeah, that's funny. And it's also funny. Uh, this last comment she makes, I think, is interesting uh, about the, the cutthroat design idea where an intelligent machine could just say like, oh, I could make myself better than a brain just by figuring out how brains work, reverse engineering that, making myself into a brain and then upgrading myself. <laughs> But anyway, uh, altogether, Schneider thinks that these points should convince us that alien civilizations that we encounter are way more likely to be post-biological machines, super intelligent AIs, than they are to be biological organisms made of meat. And Schneider also makes one point that I think is very good. If it's possible to become a post-biological superintelligence, uh, but not a common fate for all intelligent alien species, so maybe not all alien civilizations go this direction, the ones we encounter are still more likely to be the ones that do become post-biological superintelligent machines because these uh, beings will be better at space travel and better at spreading across the galaxy. Think about the fact that they have no biological risks from space travel like we do. Yeah, uh, Shostak gets to this point as well that, yeah, there would still be risks. Space is still incredibly dangerous, but the bio-risks would be effectively removed. And then since you would, uh, as a machine intelligence, you would be effectively immortal um, in ways that in, in ways that even a, 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 you know, a very long-living biological organism would not, um, all trips would be the same uh, distance. All trips would have the same duration because time kind of loses all meaning. If it takes you 100 years, 1,000 years, uh, you know, several thousand years to reach the place you're going, that kind of loses its importance if there is no end point to your existence. Yeah, Rob 9000 does not care. Yeah. All right. So in dealing with this question of post-biological intelligence and potentially encountering post-biological intelligence, one of the big questions, of course, is, well, what would it mean for us? What mm -hmm. would what would the relationship be? What would a post-biological civilization want? And I guess the first way to tackle that is to sort of look at the, the precursor. What does a biological civilization want? Mm-hmm. Well, as uh, Stephen Hawking and many others have pointed out, if we're to use our only model of intelligent life that we have, which is us, then uh, obviously biological aliens would be interested in things like domination, resource acquisition, uh, possibly religious convergence, 
Or if we were to tie The Simpsons into all of this, uh, you know, we could think to the Citizen Kang Treehouse of Horror segment. They might be interested in us merely in order to point a giant space laser at another planet. So resources, yes, but also maybe strategic location in some greater interstellar conflict. I just had an idea that I don't know if it makes any sense, but I was thinking about some of the some of the horrors of colonialism on Earth were not just about the extraction of resources from the colony, but also about the acquisition of customers within a colony for the businesses in the in the home country. And I wonder, mm. could there be some kind of uh, comparison to this in, in a galactic sense? Like, uh, w- could it be possible that aliens would want to initiate contact with Earth in order to acquire some analogy to customers, buyers for their products? Oh my! Uh, uh, nothing's coming to mind, but I am sure this this has got to have been a, this has had to have been explored in in science fiction, especially like like Reagan era sci fi. You know, that's mm-hmm. uh, that's commenting on capitalism and so forth. Like, in fact, like surely Philip K. Dick explored this idea a little oh, bit. This that seems like it'd sense. be right up his alley. I can't think of one, but that that would be an amazing Philip K. Dick theme. I'm sure he did it. Yeah. <laughs> So again, you know, if we only have a, have our own intelligence really to base most of this off on as a model, but uh, this would it would seem to present a rather dark scenario. Though certainly, uh, biological aliens could be different. Uh, there's, you know, they they could they could just want to be our friends. They could want to, they could have uh, you know they could come in peace, as they say. Right. I mean, Stephen Hawking, yeah, he was very cautious about the idea of SETI. He was like, we, 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 don't, we don't want anything to do with other uh, mm-hmm. aliens in the galaxy because the chances are it would not go well for us. But people uh, who are involved in SETI itself, in SETI-type research, it seems to me more often – I mean, I probably – there's a selection effect by nature of the fact that they are part of this uh, effort to reach out and establish contact with other uh, civilizations or at least detect their presence. There seems to be more optimism in the SETI crowd to me, like the yeah. less, a, less of an automatic assumption that the way aliens view us would be would be uh, extractive and, you know, more of an idea that uh, an alien that as a civilization progresses toward the point where it can reach out into the cosmos, it also maybe matures like it, it reaches its own form of humanism and maybe that extends beyond its own species. Yeah, and I guess, too, there's also the argument uh, – it's kind of like moving into a new neighborhood. Do you want to say hi to your new neighbors, uh, you know, the first couple of weeks, or do you want to wait until – there's a conflict, you know, uh, you know, what do you want? What do you want your first communication going to, to be? Because non-detection is not a long term possibility. You know, they're going to see you leaving your house at some point. You're going to have that awkward moment where you make eye contact and then you're like, oh, yeah, we never actually said hi to each other, you know. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, a lot of this concerns biological life. The, these questions and some of these ideas don't entirely disappear when we consider uh, post-biological life. But it, again, the question is. What about alien AI? What would a post-biological species want with us? What would they, as Shostak uh, points, puts it, what would they, quote, find interesting to do? Um, uh, which I like. I like the way of pointing that out. It's like it, it sort of, to a certain extent, it goes beyond like goals and uh, things that it needs. Like what, what does it do with its time? Like what is its purpose? And Shostak points out that sci-fi has certainly explored this topic, but he thinks only three things seem plausible enough to consider discussion. So first of all, he argues that since, quote, high-speed computation requires compact configuration, the machines would likely remain localized. And this would better benefit, uh, you know, swarm or shared processing. So they wouldn't be spread out over vast distances. They might be localized into an area only thousands of light years across. So if you're imagining, you know, something like... uh, the, the post-biological Necrons from uh, Warhammer 40,000, you know, uh, that are, they just want to spread out all over the galaxy and take it over. Like, that wouldn't make as much sense because they want to maintain maximum, uh, you know, uh, computational uh, power. So they're going to stick to their own kingdom. Coming back to Susan Schneider... She argues that biologically inspired uh, superintelligences would would tend to have one or more what she calls global workspaces. And I actually want to read her quote on this because I thought this was interesting. She says, 
When you search for a fact or concentrate on something, your brain grants that sensory or cognitive content access to a, quote, global workspace, where the information is broadcast to attentional and working memory systems for more concentrated processing, as well as to the massively parallel channels in the brain. The global workspace operates as a singular place when important information from the senses is considered in tandem, so that the creature can make all things considered judgments and act intelligently in light of all the facts at its disposal. In general, it would be inefficient to have a sense or cognitive capacity that was not integrated with the others, because the information from this sense or cognitive capacity would be unable to figure in predictions and plans based on an assessment of all the available information. And this comes into play here because it seems like a civilization based on a super intelligent AI, uh, if it spread itself too far, it would become impossible to maintain a global workspace at speed. It would start having information that was not shared, and that would result in inefficiencies. Hmm. Yeah, that, that lines up, I think, rather well with this. Now, now, the second point that Shostak makes is that given the very short time scale for improvement, uh, it would be winner takes all. The first machine society to rise would dominate, at least within a certain volume of space. Going, you know, going back to point number one. Um, now, he argues that there, there could be a little wiggle room for some machine civilizations to overtake elder civilizations, um, but that a sufficiently advanced machine civilization could rule its fiefdom indefinitely. Um, uh, now, but, uh, but I wonder if uh, if another way of looking at this sort of thing would be you know a resulting confederacy of machine cultures a kind of multicultural machine super civilization where maybe you have the you know the one older more advanced and you know unconquerable um the machine culture, but then it ends up absorbing other ones that are part of it, that have some purpose or, or role within the machine whole, but are not uh, you know, like the driving force, kind of like subservient uh, machine cultures, I guess. Hmm. And then uh, number three, even for machines, he points out, space is dangerous and Darwinian <laughs> selection would take place. Quote, if a machine exists now, it's because its mode of existence has kept this device from natural disaster or possibly even from deliberate disaster. If such a phenomenon exists for machines, perhaps it makes a lot of copies or at least a few copies updating as necessary. It does something to withstand inevitable catastrophe. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, to pick up on this, there's no reason to say that biological evolution is a process that is uh, that is inherently tethered only to carbon-based organisms that reproduce, you know, that, that have genetic code based on DNA. Anything that's subject to survival and reproduction, and I, I would guess that machines, you know, computational machines would in some way be subject to survival and reproduction. They can make copies of themselves. Uh, they can iterate their code that it seems like those things would be subject to a form of natural selection. Yeah. Though the interesting thing there would be, I guess, would would it be uh, useful to think about their code in terms of something like genes? Uh, because, of course, you know, genes within biological organisms can have gambits to survive on their own regardless of the success of the overall organism, right? Like if an individual gene in your body figures out a way to make lots of copies of itself without regard to the health of its, you know, to, to the health of the body as a whole, it will do that. You know, it's, it's the mm -hmm. genes just trying to get out there. I wonder if you could look at individual pieces of, I don't know what code or nodes or processing functions within a machine intelligence that would behave in the same way. Yeah, yeah. So you, it seems like that idea you could, you could come up with a, a concept where uh, a machine civilization would have a tendency to colonize new areas, you know, mm. uh, because it would give itself room to uh, to copy itself. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, but then, of course, you have to think about the constraints about uh, you know, processing uh, speed, et cetera, and you know, having uh, you know, sticking to a local domain. Uh, but maybe that would allow for some level level of um, mechanical budding to take place. Yeah, maybe cutting off pieces of itself would actually make it more resilient to, say, uh, infection by viral bits of code. Yeah. Well, you know, thinking about it even more now, so say, say you have this mechanical super civilization and it, it again, is staying within a certain area. Well, if it is, if it definitely, if it wants to survive, if that is like a driving force in it that is like just coded into it, maybe from its biological or, you know, elder creators, then 
it, it then perhaps copying itself not only within its realm but in other realms like that is one way to try and survive uh not only like nearby realms but maybe far flung realms you know mm. uh you know to, to get outside of not only this star system but this system of systems to get outside of the galaxy if possible that's interesting Okay, folks, this is one of those episodes that went very long, and we have decided it is best to divide this talk in two parts. So we're going to have to cut part one right here, but come back and join us on Thursday for the continuation of our discussion in part two. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you know where to find them in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed, and you'll get that wherever you find your podcast. Wherever that happens to be, if the platform gives you the ability to do so, just make sure you rate, review, and subscribe. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future, just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank you.